This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. Many in the forensic accounting world, like me, see Dr. Mark Negrini, associate professor at West Virginia University, as one of the forefathers of forensic analytics. Dr. Negrini pioneered the use of Benford's Law, a mathematical principle regarding the expected occurrence of digits within numbers of a naturally occurring data set, as a method to detect potential fraud, waste, and abuse. In his seminal 2011 book, Forensic Analytics, Methods and Techniques for Forensic Accounting Investigations, he states that, Forensic analytics describes the act of obtaining and analyzing electronic data using formulas and statistical techniques to reconstruct, detect, or otherwise support a claim of financial fraud. The main steps in forensic analytics are A, data collection, B, data preparation, C, the use of forensic analytics, and D, evaluation, investigation, and reporting. The availability of computer power and the use of the internet for many facets of forensic analytics have made all the steps in the process easier. All that is missing now is for forensic investigators, internal auditors, external auditors, and other data analysts to use the methods and techniques on their data. Much has evolved in the world of forensic analytics in the 10 years since Dr. Negrini's book was first published. Processing power, data available, the technological world in general, all give way to new analysis and techniques for today's investigators. Kurt and I are joined by two eminent academics in the world of forensic analytics to discuss their perspective on the securities markets, insider trading, and other questions being answered using cutting-edge forensic analytics, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, keeping it fresh and always staying wonky on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. I, I feel like this one is shaping up to be a little bit more on the wonky side, but we've got a great episode today. I know you're excited about this one because it's Definitely. right up your alley. Uh, you already lost me with Benford's Law, uh, but we're going to get there. <laughs> we'll catch up we're on that later. There, right? So on this episode, we are going to be talking about forensic analytics, uh, where we will explore forensic or data analytics as a discipline generally, and more specifically, as a tool to identify potential misconduct in our capital markets. And we'll consider the use or usefulness of data analytics through the lens of insider trading, including potential trading violations by executives who use or rely on 10B51 plans. We've got a lot of ground to cover. And as you mentioned, Chris, we have two incredible guests to help us. We are joined by Alan Jagelinzer and Daniel Taylor. But before we get into it, Chris, let's do some quick introductions. Alan is the professor of financial accounting, the head of the accounting faculty subject group, and the director of the Center for Financial Reporting and Accountability at the University of Cambridge Judge Business School over in England. Professor Jagelinzer was the 2015 Academic Fellow at the International Accounting Standards Board and was the 2010 recipient of the Stanford University Graduate School of Business MBA Distinguished Teaching Award. 
Among his other achievements, Allen published the first study that documented insiders' strategic use of Rule 10b-51 plans and has advised the SEC and class action attorneys about potential misuse of these plans. Allen, welcome to Insecurities. Thanks for having us, and I would definitely fit the wonky definition, so I'm happy to be here. Great. (laughs) We're glad to have you. All right. Our other guest today is Daniel Taylor, who is a tenured professor at the Wharton School and an award-winning researcher and teacher with extensive experience on issues related to corporate transparency, accounting fraud, and insider trading. Professor Taylor's research has been cited in rules and regulations promulgated by the Securities and Exchange Commission and has been instrumental in multiple investigations by the SEC, FBI, Treasury Department, and the Department of Justice. Professor Taylor is also director of the Wharton Forensic Analytics Lab. More on that later. He teaches a cutting-edge undergraduate course, Forensic Analytics, that applies state-of-the-art analytics to SEC filings. And he teaches a doctoral seminar on data analysis. Also, like me, Dan hails from the first state, Delaware. Dan, we're excited to have you on the show. Welcome to Insecurities. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. I think we are, Kurt, leaning a little bit wonkier today, and, and maybe not not so much on the securities regulatory side, but on the accounting, on the forensic accounting side. So I'm, I'll wear the wonky <laughs> hat today, and we'll try to keep it fresh for you. And one of the <laughs> ways you. that we see both Alan and Dan's research and kind of the current markets playing between the, the law and the accounting world uh, relates to insider trading. And I know, Kurt, you, you remember... God, way back when in episode four, when we talked about insider trading, um, yeah. both the fact that it's a it's a prevalent issue today and something that the enforcement uh, bar is looking at constantly, and also the fact that there really isn't a legal statute or well defined rule that that folks are charged with uh, violating or against. So, Kurt, talk us talk us through some of the issues with insider trading that we touched on in that episode. Yeah, I want to give a super quick primer to orient our listeners to the insider trading landscape, but definitely go back and check out. It was episode four. That was more than a year ago. It's still one of our more popular episodes because I, I like to think we did a pretty good job of, of talking about insider trading. But yeah, so here we go. Us. Yeah, right. Here we go. I'm going to do it as quick as I can. So Chris, like you said, there is no statutory definition of insider trading. Rather, the federal securities laws include a general prohibition on the use of any manipulative or deceptive device, scheme, or course of business in connection with the purchase or sale of a security. That's a mouthful, and it's pretty broad, uh, which has led to frequent calls for a new insider trading act or for the SEC to promulgate more specific or more clear rules about what is and what is not insider trading. Until then, we're left with judge-made formulations of insider trading violations and essentially reading across a large body of case law, illegal insider trading is the purchase or sale of securities while in possession of information that is material and non-public, in breach of a duty of confidence, and with fraudulent intent. Uh, Those elements are the same, whether we're talking about a civil case brought by the SEC or a criminal case brought by the the Department of Justice or one of the um, U.S. attorney's offices, uh, with the exception that the criminal authorities must prove that the trading was willful, the SEC can rely on a reckless standard. Uh, There's an awful lot more to unpack there. I'm going to leave it at that for now because I think that's enough to get us through the 10B51 conversation. Our guests will help us uh, break out any more details that we need to. Uh, But Chris, why don't you keep us moving forward? 
Yeah, I mean, the insider trading, the classic case is is an executive or, or a director on the golf course with a friend who tells them offhand or, or without intention that, that something may or may not be happening at that company. That friend then goes and makes a trading decision or enforce someone else. And so we can talk about the downstream tippies and all those kind of things. But one of the things we'll focus on today is a different style of, quote, insider unquote, trading. Uh, you know, Think about the folks actively buying and selling the stock for which the company they manage, the CEO's uh, compensation or stock holdings, as well as uh, board of directors members um, who may have access to, to non-public information. So those folks are actually required to report their activity in the stock of the company that they manage through a few different uh, types of information. So for example, Section 16 of the Exchange Act requires directors and officers, you know, the executive management or the board. Board, uh, as well as investors who own more than 10% of a class of a company's equity securities to report their purchase or sale of shares of that company within specific timeframes and on the required forms uh, for the SEC. And speculation has existed in the market for decades regarding the appropriate timing and potential advantageous ability that these executives and directors may have in making their personal trading decisions. Yeah, there's a lot of room for potential uh, misconduct or, or maybe just um, you know bad decisions with with no intent to engage in in fraud. Uh, Dan actually recently co-wrote an op-ed for Bloomberg with SEC Commissioner Caroline Crenshaw. And spoiler alert: Caroline is going to be a guest on Insecurities coming up in a few weeks. So, uh, listeners, please stay tuned. the The op-ed for Bloomberg was called "Insider Trading Loopholes Need to Be Closed," and in it, uh, Dan and Commissioner Crenshaw talked about this problem of insider trading um, using 10B51 plans. And so uh, they do a really nice job of sort of crystallizing it. I'm, I'm going to read a couple graphs from the op-ed. Senior executives are routinely exposed to inside information, what's officially considered material non-public information, just by doing their jobs. If they were permitted to trade on that information ahead of shareholders and the public, it would undermine confidence in the markets. But since many executives receive a significant portion of their compensation in stock, they need to be able to sell shares, whether to pay expenses, diversify their investments, or just generate cash without running afoul of securities laws. To address this dilemma, 20 years ago, the commission developed Rule 10b-5-1, which allows senior executives to establish a formal plan setting forth a pre-established formula that would trigger stock sales. As long as the plan was adopted while the executive didn't have inside information, the rule provides an affirmative defense for planned trades against any allegations of insider trading. Once in place, the plan can be modified as long as the executive is not aware of inside information at the time of the modification and those modifications generally need to be disclosed to the SEC or the public. Alan, I know that you have spent a lot of time uh, studying and thinking about 10B51 plans. And as we said up top, it's it's a really rich area for us to kind of dive into forensic analytics. Um, but I mean, tell us a little bit about the regulatory regime. How does the commission try to enforce transparency? Is it working? I can't speak specifically to how they're coming in after uh, enforcement of transparency, but I mean, we, you know, we have access to the data that they do collect, which is primarily the form fours, uh, 144s, which Dan notes are problematic because they're still paper filed and they need to get electronically filed. So we have access to that data and we can, we on the outside are the ones doing sort of the analytics around the patterns associated with the trading. So that gives us some insights. 
But a lot of the regime doesn't have transparency. And, and particularly within 10b-5-1, I think there are problems with the lack of transparency around whether insiders are, you know, executives are in 10b-5-1 plans to begin with, what kind of length of time, how the plans are structured, and what we might actually expect from trading within it, whether they've terminated early. These are, this is the kind of data that we were really under a voluntary regime, and it makes it very difficult for us to actually do any kind of enforcement. Dan, I know Kurt just referenced a significant part of that that op-ed that, that you and Commissioner Crenshaw wrote. What other issues were you dealing with in, in reviewing that information? And kind of what is the problem and, and what's the solution that, that you might see coming down the road? I think there's really two things to keep in mind here. Um, the first is the, is the issue of disclosure. And the second is the actual issue of, of the trading itself. Corporate insiders have a substantial fraction of their wealth tied up in the firm. And so they need a mechanism to be able to diversify themselves and, and, and liquidate shares without running afoul of, um, you know, insider, insider trading rules. And so that's where 10b-5-1 came from. The, the issue is, is that the, the current disclosure regime around 10b-5-1 is, as Alan suggested, is, is, is pretty weak. I mean, it's, it, it's actually remarkably weak, I would say, in the sense that you don't have to, there's no mandatory disclosure for whether the executive has entered a 10b-5-1 plan. plan. There's no mandatory disclosure that the trade was made pursuant to a 10b-5-1 plan. You don't have to disclose the date that the plan was adopted. And uh, if you are selling, interestingly, if you are selling uh, restricted or control securities pursuant to a 10b-5-1 plan, you have to file what's known as a Form 144. And that Form 144 is filed by mail with the SEC. So our analysis- I'm, I'm sorry, you said mail, Dan. I think you misspoke. You mean like snail mail? Yeah, like snail mail. I mean, <laughs> this is where the forensic analytics really comes in because yeah. you know, most people don't know, you know, you can't get a Form 144 on Edgar or you can, but there's only a few hundred of them. Um, and, you know, to, to listeners who have access to a Bloomberg terminal or an Icon terminal, uh, you know, go look for the Form 144s on there and you'll see plenty of them. So what's going on? Well, the answer is, is that executive fills out the 144 by hand, mails it to the SEC. The SEC stores the handwritten form in the reading room for 30 days and then removes it and doesn't upload it to Edgar. Uh, and so there was actually a, a rule that was or a proposed uh, rule on 144 that just just proposed comment period just ended uh, last month or two months ago that uh, Alan and I submitted a comment on basically saying, you know, make these things electronic. Um, why, why are it's, it's 2021. Why are we still dealing with, with mail? Seems, filing? seems a bit outdated, right? But that, that just shows like, we don't need to go down that, that rabbit hole. We already kind of have, but you know, that just shows you, I, I would say, or illustrates the state of the disclosure around these plans. It's very, it's very archaic. Um, hasn't really, you know, it's not as as interesting or as topical as GameStop or some of the other, you know, Reg BI, some of the other things that get all the attention. And and just to piggyback, if if we go back in time, there was a proposal right around the timing of Sarbanes Oxley to disclose considerable amount of detail about 10B51, including initiation and and things like that, and that was going to come through 8K, but that got tabled indefinitely. And I think it's because some of the broader proposal elements became part of Sarbanes-Oxley. So my suspicion is that, that they felt that was sufficient. But it's, in my opinion, it's clearly not. Always interesting to see things that are done on paper, handwritten uh, by mail, Dan. So thanks for highlighting that issue. 
Dan, you recently co-authored a study uh, where you actually took the information of over 21,000 individual 10B51 plans and uh, found some interesting conclusions. For instance, uh, the study found that 38% of the plans adopted in a given quarter executed trades immediately before that quarter's earning announcement, almost kind of uh, indicating that they're attempting to follow the the rules of a 10B51 plan, but also maybe timing it advantageously for themselves, knowing how, how that individual quarter might go. Am I understanding the study right? Talk to us a little bit about the information you reviewed and maybe some of the other conclusions uh, that that study brought about. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, this goes back to the paper filings, right? This is the first academic study that actually has details on, you know, thousands upon thousands of 10B51 uh, plans and their associated trades. And the reason we were able to get that is because, you know, the data provider we're using actually sends someone to the SEC reading room to scan those paper filings. So think about taking the paper filings that have the amount that's being sold, the adoption date of the plan, scanning them in, digitizing them, and then running those through running those through algorithms. That's kind of a sense of, of what we did. So it was it was a big undertaking. And what we found was kind of you know kind of striking. I would say I think it depends on a lot of where people come from. I, I know some of my colleagues you know generally are skeptical of ten B five one plans. Other other colleagues think they're sort of they're, they're fantastic. They're normally used uh, well. Um, and, and we were kind of surprised at the extent to which we saw things that were inconsistent with best practices. Right. So as you as you noted, in, in 38 percent of, of plans that we examined, they were adopted during a quarter and then executed the first trade before that quarter's earnings announcement. Right. So so by definition, those plans are going to have what's known as a cooling off period, the time between the, the adoption of uh, the execution of the first trade less than a quarter. Um, so they're adopted in a quarter and they execute before the before the earnings announcement. There are also plans. Some companies allow plans to be adopted inside uh, trading blackout windows. Most companies have windows before their earnings announcements where they uh, forbid the trading of, of corporate officers and directors. But in some cases, they're not forbidding the, the signing of, of 10B51 plans. Um, and, and so we kind of looked at and, and did, a, did almost as you think like a back test on the best practices. So there's a lot of uh, you know talk out there, oh, best practice is this, best practice is that. But those comments are being made based on you know survey evidence of hundreds of companies, not based on an analysis of tens of thousands of 10B51 plans. Uh, and so that's that's really where we were coming at it. And we were kind of surprised, you know, we found that uh, you know, 15, I think 15% of companies don't have a blackout window of you know of more than 30 days. Um, which was surprising to us, especially given uh, former Chair Clayton's suggestion of a cooling off period of, of four to six months. Whereas in our data, uh, I think we found 80% of plans did not have a cooling off period uh, that lived up to that, that expectation. And so that was, that was sort of surprising. And so we, we, in that paper, what we do is we try and judge opportunism or abuse based on the extent to which the trade uh, avoids losses. And so we start slicing trades and we, and we look at, for example, the trades that avoid the most losses. Those are the trades that come from these short trigger or no cooling off plans where they execute within 30 days. The ones that avoid greater losses are single trade plans. So you can have a 10B51 plan and it only executes a single trade, a large single trade. 
Um, and, and so we really looked at how the characteristics of the plans. So now the question is, is the data suggest, let's say, that there are some outliers in the data and that the outliers are maybe more common than, than we might like to see, uh, either as a society or as, as the regulators or enforcement, uh, enforcement professionals. Chris, Kurt, you mentioned that, that op-ed that I had with uh, SEC Commissioner Crenshaw. You know, in that op-ed, we really broke the potential solutions into two groups. The one is disclosure, which I think we've talked about a little bit, you know, get off this paper filing and get on the electronic, uh, make the disclosure of the plan uh, mandatory, disclose the adoption date of the plan, disclose the modification date of the plan, and disclose the total amount of shares covered by the plan. This isn't sort of like an, an academic point. This is, you know, it's flown sort of underneath the ra- the governance radar, I think, of, of most governance professionals. Good example that I use is, um, is Les Moonves of, of CBS uh, fame. He had a 10B51 plan that effectively liquidated, you know, 100 million or 150 million of his equity position in the firm. And that the existence of that plan was not required disclosure. So you think if you're an institutional investor or a shareholder and you're voting on management's compensation, it's probably useful information to know whether they've signed a plan to cash out all of their equity holdings in the company. Because if they have, then you should really maybe think twice about giving them more equity. Um, That's sort of like the disclosure side. Uh, On the trading side, uh, the suggestions or uh, are prescriptions, things that the SEC should consider. We're basically requiring the 10B51 plans until multiple transactions uh, spread out over time uh, that constitute a regular pre-established program of buying and selling and that that program is written. Now, that sounds a lot like what's actually in the spirit of the Rule 10B51 plan, Mm -hmm. but it, it hasn't actually been implemented that way. Uh, in, in in most companies, this is important work. the The findings from the from the studies are are fascinating and useful. I think you know the way that you explain it, Dan. You can immediately see the value uh, in in letting the data drive the regulatory regime or the rules or the potential remedies um, rather than relying on anecdotal evidence or guesswork in crafting new or amended rules. So I just, I think it's incredibly important. And that's, that's sort of where we wanted to start the episode or spend the first bit of the episode is kind of talking about um, the types of things we might study, what the findings might look like, how they can drive um, potential decisions about next steps or tweaks to the regulatory framework. And of course, we've been focusing on 10B51 plans and a little bit on political insiders, but the same rules or the same concept applies across any number of regulatory topics. You know, in a sense, we've been we've been sort of starting at the end, right? Because it provides that helpful context uh, for for all you listeners out there to the types of areas where we might use forensic analytics to help drive better results or help us go in a better direction. What we want to do now, though, is is just kind of like pull it back a little bit and talk about what what does forensic analytics really mean? What is it as a discipline? Because it sort of sounds like one of those phrases that can mean different things to different people. Alan, I want you to unpack it for us a little bit. And, and Chris, I have no doubt you're going to want to weigh in here too. But when, we, when we're talking about forensic analytics, what are we talking about? 
to me, it's it's fundamentally looking for patterns of behavior or actions that look abnormal. I mean, fundamentally, and it depends on the context what abnormal means. But there's sort of a pattern. You know, if we go back to 10b51 briefly, there's a pattern of behavior for systemic traders, and then there are those who just I'll give you an example. A lot of the systemic traders trade small amounts. They trade pretty frequently. And then the the returns, the subsequent stock performance is neither good or bad. It just sort of is on average, it just averages out and it's really benign. But then there are cases where, as Dan pointed out, there's this one-off scenario where there's a large shock of trading coming out right at uh, right before a particular event. And so, so it's it's the outliers, it's the ones that that surprise you, and 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 that's kind of what we do. And and you see that as well in some of the work we've we've seen our colleagues do in things such as meeting or beating analyst forecasts and the frequency of that happening. And you'll see discontinuities. Um, the data might show a patterns that look different because you might expect, uh, for example, a systemic curve to 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 appear, but then there's a disconnect and there's a there's a, a break point where all of a sudden you see a lot more frequency than you might expect normally right above meeting analysts or meeting or beating analyst forecasts right around that cusp, things like that. So, so it's, it's utilizing the data to try to identify patterns that seem abnormal relative to either some expectation you have in your head about what patterns should observe or relative to peers, I guess. That's that's the my way of phrasing it. Dan might have a different perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, forensic analytics, you know, is pretty close to the definition that Chris gave at the top in the sense that, you know, you're using math, algorithms, uh, data to to investigate for potential uh, misconduct or, or other interesting aspects of, of the law that may not actually be misconduct. They may be benign, but suggest you know, maybe changes in the law or changes in the, in the, in the rules. And so that's really what I, I think of as forensic analytics. I mean, it's, you think of when you think of a forensic accountant, you think of an individual doing an investigation at a given firm, going through the debits and the credits and the journal entries and the general ledger and, and, and all of that. But really, I think forensic analytics is, is sort of that on steroids and it's being done across multiple firms. So, you know, what Alan and I are talking about is, is studying thousands upon thousands of data points, millions of data points in some cases, across the universe of publicly traded firms. And that kind of puts us at the frontier of the intersection of law, economics, and, and finance, and to some extent, data science. Um, because, you know, like when something shows up in the media like GameStop or, or, or AMC or, 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 or Reg BI, you know, that's kind of, that's on the top, that's at the surface. And forensic analytics is going below the surface to look really at the information plumbing system that underlies our economy. You know, like who would have thought we'd have mail filings in this day and age, for example. Um, so that's what I think forensic analytics is, 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 you know, it's just digging deeper below the surface that everybody's sort of looking at. A lot of people think that it's a tool from the outside. And so people on the outside are looking at you to try to evaluate what's going on. But it, it actually could be really useful inside in like an internal audit scenario, we, it's, it's used there. But, but also, even, even when you're looking at insider trading, I mean, there could be completely benign trading happening, but there could be patterns of data that to an outsider with, with hindsight, with look back, don't look benign. And that could actually generate unwanted attention inadvertently. And so having an ability to kind of think about what data patterns are we 
presenting publicly, I think is a really interesting framing for a way in which data analytics could be useful from an internal perspective. We've really scratched the surface of what we can do. You know, the SEC is using analytics, obviously, in its surveillance activities, EPS initiative, uh, how they do insider trading with, with Atlas and Artemis algorithms. Um, but sort of they've scratched the surface. I think the legal community has scratched the surface in the sense that one can design an, an algorithm to identify outlier disclosures, outlier trades. You know, if you are the, the general counsel of, of a company, you know, you would probably be good to know if your chief operating officer is doing 10 times the trading of, you know, your peer group. Uh, that's probably something as a general counsel you'd want to know and try and clamp down on, you know. How do you minimize litigation risk? Well, you make sure you're not the outlier. You've got an in, in insider trading policy that's, you know, that's very similar to your peers. It's got robust blackout trading blackout windows uh, that are sort of industry best practices. You know, what about disclosures? How do you write your MDNA? You know, there's been a lot of uh, stuff with the Cheesecake Factory case gets talked about a lot in the context of COVID disclosures. You know, how do you know if what your COVID disclosure is or should be? Well, you look at your industry. Well, what was everybody doing in the industry? Why are you the outlier? Why aren't you disclosing anything? You know, why are you just using boilerplate? And, you know, that's something that legal counsel would want to know, both external legal counsel and internal legal counsel. You know, basically minimize the chance that your company is doing something, you know, outlierish, either in terms of trading or, or in terms of disclosure. And data analysis can, can help you identify those outliers. Yeah, unless that's your intent. If your intent is to be the outlier, then you can identify that you're at the outlier and know why you're doing that. But, but I would argue that most of them don't, don't want to be the outlier. I just want to make a couple quick notes here. First, <clears throat> Kurt, you know, you tossed up the fact that both you and Dan are from Delaware. And then sneakily, <laughs> Dan has worked in two unsolicited Reg BI references already this episode. Yeah. So oh, I don't I'm know counting. what back channeling is going on uh, there in the first state, <laughs> but we'll need to revisit that. Uh, but I think, you know, Alan and Dan, you guys have both touched on the importance of, of standardized information, right? That's a part of this whole analytics discussion is you can't really compare apples and oranges. You need those apples to be aligned. And fans of the podcast know, uh, Kurt, and, and much to your chagrin, that I'm a huge fan of, of consistent and comparable information from a financial reporting perspective. And that's obviously an element or an objective of any financial reporting framework. And the SEC and other regulators have worked recently in the past 15 or 20 years to really standardize that electronic uh, information, Form 144s uh, outside of that purview, obviously. But looking to let investors and other stakeholders make decisions by comparing, you know, similar information between different companies, industries, and geographies. And I know that's a big part of the analytics conversation. Dan, how have you seen these standardized data sets really help or expand on research topics that, that you can look at? Yeah, I mean, I think standardized data is, is almost in some sense a prerequisite from, from most analysis uh, that we do with algorithms and uh, and computers, because as you mentioned, you need to compare apples to apples, right? And so, I mean, that's really what GAAP, generally accepted accounting principles, allows you to do. I can compare my EBITDA of one company to that of another. I can compare my net income. I can compare revenues. I can compare cash flows from operations because there are standardized definitions uh, that go into computing those terms. And so then I can do a, a sort of peer analysis without having to worry about um, reporting choices or opportunistic reporting choices, you know, like, oh, did they exclude stock-based compensation expense from net income? Did they exclude cost of goods sold? Did they exclude leases? 
you know, they can't do that from gap net income. Uh, they can do that from non-gap uh, income, but certainly not from gap income. And so I think standardization is kind of the bedrock upon which a lot of the, the analysis is, uh, that we do and that others in this area do, uh, because you have to have similar data coming in in order to make meaningful comparisons. We're going to switch gears a little bit here. Um, you know, Dan, we talked briefly when we were planning the episode about the work that you've been doing um, with the with the Wharton Forensic Analytics Lab. And I'd like to give you a chance to talk a little bit about uh, just what what's going on at the lab, what are you doing, uh, what are the students up to, um, and how you think about forensic analytics and the projects that are coming down the pipeline. Yeah, thanks, Kurt. Uh, appreciate the opportunity. You know, it's 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 really interesting because uh, it's one of the first, I think, academic labs or academic centers that really has this focus on let's call it corporate transparency or or, or corporate misconduct. And as as Alan pointed out, you know, you can really use analytics and and data to actually try and sort of uncover, if not misconduct, then you know, you know, some behavior that maybe needs needs to be spotlighted. Uh, so we've got, you know, a couple projects in, uh, in the pipeline. You know, one of the projects is, you know, late form four filings. So as we talked about the insider trading, you know, insiders have to file a form four within two business days when they trade in a company's stock. Um, and it turns out that, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of these trades are filed late. And I don't mean like one day later, hours late. I mean, weeks late. And there are some habitual late filers. You know, some companies out there file 90% of their Form 4s uh, more than five days late. Um, you know, over $90 million of one particular company uh, was filed late. So there's a lot of, uh, let's call it um, outliers uh, in terms of late Form 4 filings out there. So we've got a project looking at looking at late filings. Um, that's that I think is really interesting because in addition to, to seeing whether there's systematic persistently filings, you can look at what other patterns that seems to predict uh, at the company. Is it weak internal controls? Is it uh, opportunistic trading? Uh, is it insufficient uh, resources or, or attention to, uh, to compliance? Another uh, project we have that sort of we haven't really touched on ESG might be the first podcast on the one where ESG doesn't come up, although I guess you can spin insider trading as ESG. <laughs> ESG is interesting. There's been a lot of SEC interest in, in, in this and not at the company level, but at the fund level, right? So there's a lot of ETFs and funds out there that are, that are marketing as, as ESG. And so it's interesting to, to think about, you know, is there, are there faux ESG funds or, or is, it, is, it, is the marketing of ESG just hype as opposed to substance? So one thing we're, we're looking into building is a, and we've got a, an alpha version of this. It's not even ready for beta testing, but we've got an alpha version compiled together to look at the underlying holdings of ESG funds or funds marketed as ESG, and then compare their holdings to sort of like the, the size and, and value growth benchmark. So you do a, a similarity score between, let's say, a fund that markets itself as ESG and its underlying size benchmark. And if it turns out that the holdings are, you know, 98% overlapping between the size benchmark and the ESG fund, you know, you might think twice about marketing that fund as ESG. You know, we'd call that maybe a faux ESG fund. It's not really ESG. It's, it's a closet index fund. Um, and something else we're, we're, we're working on, and we just started because I, I had never heard of this before, and the people I've talked to in the enforcement space have never heard of this. So if you're listening to the podcast and you're interested, 
shoot me an email because we're just booting up on this project. We found some companies that announce earnings. So they have their financial results that are presented in a press release, but they don't file that in an 8K with the SEC. And so our operating assumption was that a, a press release announcing your financial results for the quarter would have been sufficiently material to require an 8K filing with the SEC. But there are a few companies out there where that doesn't seem to be the case. So either either there's something in securities laws or in our understanding of, of SEC filings that is off, or you know there are some, some companies out there that aren't actually uh, maybe comporting with what the SEC would like them to be doing. Uh, so that's kind of what we've got sort of in, uh, in the pipeline. And, and uh, you know, it's a really exciting time. I, I think as markets heats up, you know, and we're starting to see sort of let's call it strange behavior in the markets. I think a lot of the students get get interested. A lot of uh, external stakeholders get interested. And so, you know, it's it's really a good time to I think use academic research and use our tools uh, to actually shed as much light as possible on what's happening below the surface of capital markets. And that's really what the purpose of the lab. Uh, so if it, it sounds like you're interested in that, you know, shoot me an email. We'd be happy to see if there's some way where you can work together. And we always need external partners. It's fascinating work. And I think this must be a really interesting time to really be getting the forensic analytics lab off the ground and up and running because there are just so many stories in the news where you can really apply those tools to to develop a better understanding of what's going on sort of beneath the surface, as you said. Um We've heard a lot about how companies might use forensic analytics to identify uh, areas where they could do better, uh, conduct or practices that might make them outliers as compared to industry peers, or just to sort of better understand um, th- their business and some of the things that they're doing. Uh, Chris, question for you, my man. Uh, I know that you you obviously work as a consultant. We've talked about that before. And you are often asked to perform forensic analyses for your clients. Uh, you know, Tell us a little bit about what you do and where you think the field might be going. Yeah. And Kurt, I, I want to reference uh, Alan bringing up too, kind of that inside perspective when it comes to analytics, because that's much more where folks like me that practice in the forensic accounting world find themselves. You know, We're being asked by individual uh, corporations or firms to, to take a look at a very specific set of circumstances and, and test those out. You know, a lot of times it comes from an anomaly being identified, whether through an internal reporting function or through you know a, an ethics hotline or a whistleblower complaint uh, internally at a company that identifies a specific issue around financial reporting, around the treatment of specific transactions, or just, you know, I think John is doing something strange on the weekends, right? Those are all inputs that help color that forensic analytics conversation. One of the things we've danced around in this episode, but haven't really jumped into is kind of the comparison between the quantitative information that comes from the transactional data, the public filings, uh, the trading information, and that context, right? The contextual information of how and why trades are made, uh, journal entries are booked, uh, you know, travel and ex- entertainment expenses are approved really adds that layer of understanding to that fourth step of what Dr. Negrini talked about, that investigation, that evaluation, and that reporting. And I love uh, the example of the the 21,000 10B51 plans analysis that Dan brought up because it really highlights those four elements of a traditional forensic analytic program. Data collection. In most cases for uh, businesses like mine, it's asking the client to provide a, a zip file or, or you know, a USB drive of the information related. In Dan's case, it was 
going to a physical location and scanning that that document, that information. The second step being that uh, data preparation. How do we put this into a standardized format so that we can make conclusions about what may or may not be anomalous about the specific plan, the specific Form 144, or the trading afterwards? The third is that kind of black box and and not from a understanding perspective, but the algorithm or the test in each case from an analytics perspective is generally unique. Uh, You know, there'll be different inputs and outputs, different requests of the system to look for, you know, in the um, perspective of trading, those trades that occur within five days of an earnings announcement or transactions that occur in round dollar amounts, you know, maybe an indication of potential fraud, waste or abuse. And then finally, the interpretation of those testing results are really where the studies are published, uh, where the deliverables or the reports are given to the board of directors or to, to executive management, uh, or some conversations are had internally about what may or may not be occurring within this system that is inappropriate, and how do we control for it, whether from a systematic perspective, how do we change the the levers inside the uh, transactional information development to understand when these things are going awry, or how do we create a reporting mechanism on the back end that helps support our conversations, a dashboard, if you will, of where these these fall. So, uh, you know, the internal environment is, is very interesting and, and it changes on a daily basis. The tools available and the methods by which we're conducting those kind of uh, internal investigations are, are robust and, and constantly evolving. Um, but we're really looking to try to identify the reasons behind those anomalies and explain them in a way that management uh, can can make decisions, whether that's to terminate John because he's siphoning off funds or we really need to step up our uh, estimation processes around these hard to value assets because it's not going the way we think it should and, and we can do better. That's really helpful, Chris. Um, thank you. Because I, I have to say, I'm I'm an investigations and enforcement guy first, and I've been sort of sitting here thinking like this sounds really helpful, <laughs> uh, but it also sounds really academic. And like, how do we use this in private practice? So you've kind of hit the nail on the head there. But I, I want to let um, Alan and Dan weigh in. I mean, is is Chris describing accurately um, the the use case for this for for private companies or for public companies or for attorneys? representing them before the commission or in regulatory proceedings? I can't answer first because I think Dan's going to want to piggyback on what I'm going to say. It's definitely one of the more common ways to do it, and it can be very helpful. What I find interesting is it, and it's very common, for example, to have an issue that gets flagged, and then you bring in the data analysis team to kind of help identify it and, and articulate what's going on. I think what's interesting, though, is you, you had mentioned, one of you had mentioned this notion of dashboard. In some ways, I think what could be even more helpful is, is creating a proactive model as opposed to a reactive model where it's flagging in real time. So if there's a way in which one could move into a real-time analysis phase where outliers are being flagged right away um, and they're being noticed, then then they may be able to, to be more proactively engaged in mitigation. I would say it, it's maybe some of it is academic, but some of it is, is very is very practical. I would say it's some of the most practical uh, academic research out there in the sense that, you know, you can think about doing this analysis in two ways. Uh, Chris has, has described doing the analysis within a given company. So within a given company, looking at internal controls, um, doing an investigation within a company about how something happened. Um, and that's, you know, that's, as Alan pointed out, that's that's reactive. You can also think about doing something within a company that's proactive. So, you know, setting up that whistleblowing hotline, setting up the internal control system so that you're monitoring what's going on in the company uh, in in real time. 
that's within a given company. And that, that is certainly, I would say, the, the current state to which, you know, let's call it analytics, tends to be used within a given company. What that I think misses is it doesn't go across companies. So everything is done still on an anecdotal basis based on what that company was doing or based on what you know, the, the consultant has done for his other clients, as opposed to collecting you know, data on what the peer groups do. So in, in Chris's case about putting in these internal control systems or doing these investigations, you know, one of the ingredients might be, well, what, are our peer, what kind of control systems do our peers have? Uh, what are, how are our peers handling this? Uh, and, and so I think that analytics sort of in, and this is more, perhaps more academic than it is in the practice yet, but I think it'll get to practice, is doing the outlier analysis across uh, industry and, and, and peers. And where you do see some of that currently is when you get to into the securities uh, class action suits. And there'll be an analysis in terms of whether something is abnormal, you know, the accounting is abnormal or the trades are abnormal or, or the disclosure is abnormal uh, relative to industry peers. Well, wouldn't it be nice if you could set up that dashboard to detect those abnormal aspects before you actually get litigated, before you actually get sued in a proactive way? Uh, and that's what I think the future is going to be is companies and, and DNO in, insurers are going to realize that they can assess not just the likelihood of, of litigation risk, but potential damages from looking at deviations from industry norms and disclosures, deviations from industry norms and, and trading activity uh, and very, various other aspects uh, of the firm. And so I, I think we're going to see a lot of action uh, going forward, moving from let's call it the traditional thinking of forensic accounting as within a given firm, doing an investigation within a given firm ex post, uh, to really doing an investigation uh, of the of an industry or practices in an industry, um, you know, ex ante in, in a proactive manner. Dan, I, I have to agree with that. Alan, you talked about the proactive and the reactive. A lot of the clients that we deal with are looking for a, a proactive solution to a reactive problem. You know, we worked with a financial institution that had recently uh, signed on a, a third-party internet provider to get new customers to to sign up and open a bank account. And they were averaging about 100 uh, new customers uh, an hour uh, over a given period. Uh, and then one day, they were averaging about 20,000 new customers an hour. And this was not a, a legitimate uh, spike in their business, but actually a um, cyber attack to execute a, a uh, stolen identity fraud where they were opening bank accounts to receive a promotional bonus and then siphon that off. And so they asked us to come in afterwards and review that timeline and think about ways that we could be giving them a report so it doesn't take them three days to respond to that spike. They should know within the first hour, right? And so that's that kind of proactive mechanism to, to respond to that. So it's good to hear that Alan, Dana, uh, you know, maybe Kurt now feels a little bit better uh, about me being in agreement with you guys <laughs> on this forensic analytics topic. I do. I want to touch on kind of that that broader discussion. You know, Dan, you had posted on LinkedIn uh, uh, an interesting analysis of a recent watchdog research report regarding specific expert testimony in a in a case that's been ongoing for the past few years. Uh, the, the tenet of your argument was basically a single expert's experience may not be representative of normal occurrence in the market. No accountant or auditor can possibly have worked on, uh, discussed, or researched 
tens of thousands of companies in their career, but you know, we'll still have a robust body of experience that they're referencing. Talk to us a bit about your example there and, and what you think the issue is related to expert testimony and, and analytics. I think this kind of speaks to the origin of, let's call it the existing legal system and the legal structure. So this is, let's get a little academic for a second, uh, get really academic. Um, you know, we think of legal testimony, security uh, actions, you know, now in 2021 and, and earlier in, in the in the 90s and, and earlier. And back then you didn't have these large data sets. And so the value of the expert testimony, this is an academic conjecture, was to provide the, the court with some sense of how things are actually being done out there in the world based on this expert who has collected maybe dozens or even hundreds of anecdotes and, and consults on a regular basis with companies on a particular matter. Maybe it's an insider trading policy, maybe it's auditing, you know, whatever it is. Um, because there was really no way of knowing what the practice was at the time back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, because data wasn't available. And so I think the current practice of expert testimony is really still a holdover of that. To your point, where you get into trouble is now that there's actually data on these practices, you have circumstances in which the expert who has you know, dozens of, of clients or, or, or even hundreds of clients is saying, well, all of my clients do it this way, or I have never seen this before, or you know, speaking from their personal experience. And while that was valuable when we didn't have data, and it still might be value in the sense of credentialing uh, some sort of behavior, it can be disproven potentially with the data. So in the case that you're, you're talking about, uh, Chris, the expert had said something like, oh, in my experience, I've never seen. Well, you, know, you can look at the data and see that that happened 10% of the time. Um, and so that 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 speaks to the fact that the the particular expert had you know uh, a a narrow selection of clients or had only been exposed to a portion of clients and none of those clients had this particular problem. So is it really that that relevant of, of testimony? I've seen it in the ten b five one space where someone would say, "Oh well, it's not normal that, that the ten b five one plan would look like this." And, and then they qualify themselves by saying, oh, well, I've consulted with, you know, 50 companies on this, and this has never seen that before. It's like, well, I have 26,000 10 one plan data, and, you know, it's actually quite common. So I, I think now the data is almost becoming ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. There is a danger now to relying on experts who are speaking to their personal experience rather than speaking to a combination of their personal experience and what the data say. I think Dan nailed a point that's incredibly important. It, it's not sufficient to only do data. Uh, you need to have both. I think it's incredibly important that those who are doing the data analysis also have the institutional knowledge of the engagement, and they have some depth of understanding of how the client incorporates it. Because we have colleagues who run data, but I don't know that they truly understand the nuance behind the data. So I think it's really both that Dan's advocating for. I think we're going to move into our fun segment uh, to ask you guys a few questions about your experience as professors in this space and, and ask a couple questions about where you might go uh, in, in the semesters and the research to follow. I want to ask both you guys kind of a gut check question to kick us off here. Uh, starting with you, Alan. Uh, oftentimes, professors will bring in uh, guest speakers or, or guest lecturers to share their story. Who is your favorite guest lecturer that's been in your class? 
honestly Sam Antar. So yes, Sam, I crazy like Sam fun. Antar. You guys know Sam, <laughs> and I hope he listens. <laughs> yeah, he's he's uh, so so. I teach on a very authentic communication type style mm-hmm. and I want truth and I want although with Sam you never know what you're whether you're getting truth yeah but kind of the blunt <laughs> instrument learning is my way of going and he he is in fact a blunt instrument and and even when I go back to Stanford I have students from 18 17 years ago who still tell me they remember him and specifically <laughs> his lesson and they don't remember anything I taught them but they remember right. Sam Antar so he he's memorable Sam Antar yeah. of crazy Eddie fame uh, I believe he was cousin with the original Crazy Eddie and part of the financial and reporting function that was famously in the 1980s made off with uh, more money than they should have. Excellent. Dan- well, what you, guys, what you guys don't know is that I was actually Alan's TA back when Alan was at Stanford. And I remember nothing from actually TAing the class other than the Sam Antar guest lecture. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Ouch. Dan, how about for you, famous guest lecturer, and you can't choose Sam Antar from when you were a TA. Can we go with, uh, I don't know, I don't like the term famous. The one that the students like, the one that yeah, I, of course. I enjoy, yeah. So shout out to uh, uh, Chief Accountant in the Enforcement Division at the SEC, Matt Jakes. Uh, he does a guest lecture for me. And, uh, Always love when the accountants get the love here. Uh, it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. That's um, I, actually, I actually posted about it on, on LinkedIn. I think like my likes went up like, you know, 10,000 X. <laughs> <laughs> Once I posted it, which I thought was That's great. awesome. He does, a, he does a fantastic job. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Insecurities Podcast. And a special thanks to our guests, Alan Jagelinzer of the University of Cambridge Judge Business School and Dan Taylor of the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at EcomothCPA. And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Insecurities Podcast wherever you listen. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. These views are not the views of the hosts or their employers. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. 
No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.